Hello, and welcome to the first ever Violet podcast. Each week, we'll be taking a new story from around the world, discussing some of the theory behind it, and offering our, of course, subjective opinions. We'll explain the main points of what's going on, but the underlying aim is to dig into some of the broader political, economic, or historical themes that the topic throws up. We want to make sure that the podcast remains responsive, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on each episode, and whether you agree or disagree with our interpretations. We also want the topics we cover to be relevant and interesting, so please do let us know if there's a particular story that you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with us via our website, on Twitter with the handle at underscore the violet underscore, or you can email contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Our story this week is about the diplomatic disagreement between the UK and China over Hong Kong. A large part of this is Hong Kong's complicated political status as an ex-British colony, which is now officially a special administrative region of China. So the first thing we need to talk about is the history of Hong Kong and how it ended up as this strange hybrid political entity. So uh, Hong Kong really enters global history in the, the 1840s. Before that, there had been a lot of Chinese people living on what was Hong Kong Island, uh, several thousand, but it was a relatively peripheral part of China. In 1840, Britain and China went to war in the Opium Wars, uh, fought effectively so that Britain could have the right to sell heroin into China. And at the end of the war, at which, which Britain won, uh, China was forced to cede Hong Kong Island to Britain. Over time, Britain progressively acquired more and more of the neighbouring territory. Um, and by 1900, what we now know as Hong Kong had taken its current form under British rule. So I guess the conclusions that we're supposed to take away from that are, firstly, that Hong Kong, as we know it now, definitely didn't exist prior to British colonisation. It was a few small fishing villages. It wasn't anything like the economic powerhouse that we know now. And secondly, that that area was acquired by Britain in what I think it's pretty um, easy to call bad faith. Yeah, so, so like much of the acquisition of the British Empire and the British Museum, um, Hong Kong is a product of colonial force. Um, and Hong Kong would not have been as important as it was in global history if not for British intervention, uh, Britain first making it the basis uh, for what, global trade in the region. Um, and then later on in the 50s and 60s after World War II and Japanese occupation and British reacquisition uh, turning it into a major manufacturing centre as well. So Britain effectively builds Hong Kong as we know it now with its um, as a major economic hub, as a major training hub. And in 1984, they sign the Sino-British Joint Declaration agreeing to hand Hong Kong and its territories back to China. What was the rationale behind that on both sides? So Thatcher was the Prime Minister at the time, and at the time, uh, being the leader of the Conservative Party also, this was very controversial in Britain. Uh, Many people saw this as appeasement to a communist dictatorship uh, or as making excessive concessions to China. Uh, Thatcher's rationale for for deciding to hand Hong Kong back was firstly, legally they had to hand most of it back anyway, because they'd only leased it, they hadn't permanently acquired it. Secondly, uh, she thought that there was a threat that China would take it by force anyway, and it was better to hand it over on good terms. And thirdly, she perhaps naively thought that she could encourage China to make pro-democratic or pro-capitalist reforms um, by making this territorial concession. So... Hong Kong's handed back to China in 1997. Uh, The British had also established a very different political system to uh, what existed both in mainland Britain and in mainland China in Hong Kong at that time. So what are the main points we need to understand about Hong Kong's political system in 1997 uh, as it's handed over? 
So when, or pr prior to Hong Kong being handed over uh, to China, it was ruled uh, by an executive. The executive was the, the British governor of Hong Kong, Hong Kong being a British uh, crown colony. Uh, there was there were some aspects of democracy. Um, there were many of the civil liberties that we that we enjoy in Britain today, things like the freedom of press, uh, freedom of speech, the ability to criticize the government and the political establishment, and some elements of democracy. Uh, but it wasn't a universal franchise in the same way as it is in the UK, where the people get the chance to elect both the legislature, the lawmakers, and the executive, uh, effectively the government. When it was handed over to China. The powers of the British governor in the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong transferred over to the chief executive, who's elected by a relatively narrow circle, uh, representing the major business and, and corporate and uh, infrastructural interests in Hong Kong, uh, and formally appointed by the Chinese government in Beijing. There's then also separate elections for the Hong Kong Legislative Council. Um, there's 70 seats in that, 35 are elected by general franchise, so everyone gets to vote for those. And the other 35 are elected, again, from a smaller circle, representing major industries in Hong Kong, like tourism and fishing, for example, uh, or trade unions and labour. So I guess what's interesting about this is that the political system in Hong Kong at the handover, tying in with Hong Kong in general, is a strange hybrid. It's... Um, only really implemented by the British during the 1990s in the run-up to the handover. It's not fully democratic. There aren't um, general elections that decide the legislature and the executive, but it's equally not the completely autocratic one-party state system that exists in China. And that creates something of a tension in 1997 when Hong Kong becomes officially part of China. Yeah, and it's, some, it's somewhat of a halfway house and people have a lot of disagreements then and now about in which direction Hong Kong should move. Um, as you said, it's important to remember that even under British rule, Hong Kong was not some democratic utopia. It was still ruled by a British governor and it was still a British crown colony. Um, but as it was handed over to China in '97, we, we see the birth of what's called One Country, Two Systems, where Hong Kong is part of the Chinese state, but has a very different political uh, political culture and a political system, there is a great deal of democracy in the election of the Legislative Council, um, but it's still not a full democracy in the sense that the chief executive is not elected by popular franchise. So since 1997, there have been a number of events in recent Hong Kong history that many Hong Kongers have held up as examples of China beginning to renege on the promises of one country, two systems that it agreed in the Sino-British Joint Declaration and uh, was supposed to be held to for at least 50 years following 1997, um, and which China either maintains haven't happened or doesn't think are breaches of that agreement. Um, so in 2014, there were uh, protests that made the news around the world, known as the Umbrella Protests, because the protesters were using umbrellas in them to defend themselves from tear gas and other missiles from, from uh, Chinese or Hong Kong police, um, focusing around an electoral reform. What was, what was that electoral reform about? So in, in short, as we said before, the chief executive is not elected uh, via a universal vote. Not everyone in Hong Kong gets a say. It's a relatively uh, narrow circle of people. Um, the proposed reform was to, to further democratise that process and to 
build in a gradual movement towards universal suffrage for the election of the chief executive. What was controversial uh, was that the proposed reform for, for universal suffrage put forward by Beijing uh, also included the standard that the chief executive shall be a person who loves the country and loves Hong Kong, uh, and also stipulated that they had to be approved by the, uh, the Chinese central government. In effect, many pro-democratic protesters saw this as evidence that China would restrict the candidacy uh, and block anyone who they viewed as anti-Beijing uh, or too in favour of Hong Kong's independence or autonomy, I should say. And finally, in 2019, um, an extradition law was proposed in the Hong Kong uh, legislature, the LegCo, um, allowing criminals in Hong Kong to be extradited to China under certain circumstances, which triggered mass protests, uh, but didn't prevent the passing of the law in 2020. Yes, so that piece of legislation, on the surface of it, not particularly controversial. Many countries have extradition treaties with each other. Many different jurisdictions will hand over criminals. The worry uh, of those who were protesting in Hong Kong, I think at the height of it, about a quarter of Hong Kong's population was on the streets, uh, was that that law would be abused by Beijing in order to persecute uh, political rivals, uh, those who oppose um, greater Chinese control in Hong Kong, to extradite them to China and imprison them there for advocating for greater democracy in Hong Kong. So I suppose the most important thing to highlight there is that when we say criminals or people who break the law, um, what is a criminal act in mainland China is in some cases perfectly legal in Hong Kong. Right, exactly. And especially in terms of freedom of speech, criticism of the government, um, arguments for, for greater democracy and changes to the political system. Those in particular, I think, were the areas people will, would be worried about. Um, also, given that those people would be tried in Chinese courts rather than Hong Kong courts, uh, and many people would lack faith in the Chinese judicial system. So, in response to this, uh, the British government has changed the rules around the visa um, status of various Hong Kong residents. So what Britain has proposed announced by Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is that Hong Kong residents with a BNO passport, uh, which means a British overseas national, should be allowed to migrate to the UK and have an accelerated fast track to full British citizenship. Uh, the distinction between being a British national and a British citizen is that a British national is entitled to the protection of British embassies, um, but they do not have an automatic right to live and work in the UK. And that brings us up to what the diplomatic disagreement focuses around, because the day that uh, Britain introduced this change to the visa rules for BNO status holders, uh, which was the 31st of January, um, China declared in response that it was not going to consider those documents as uh, legal documentation anymore. So anybody seeking to leave or enter Hong Kong using their BNO uh, passport as proof of identity will be denied the ability to leave or enter. Yeah, and some people have said this this is going to be this is effectively going to trap people in Hong Kong um, because if the BNO passport is not accepted, how could they possibly leave? In effect, I don't think this will have this will make much of a difference uh, because there is also a separate uh, Hong Kong SAR special autonomous region passport, which most people in Hong Kong have. So this wouldn't really prevent people from 
uh, from escaping or from leaving Hong Kong if they wanted to. It does seem to be a significant symbolic move, though, from the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the Beijing government, uh, that they no longer recognize any British influence in the governance of Hong Kong, uh, and that they think this is now a purely Chinese internal affair in which Britain should have no say. So China maintains that Hong Kong is inalienably a part of China and that Britain is poking its nose where it's not wanted, Britain is intervening in domestic Chinese issues. Um, Which leads us to the question of what is domestic, what's international? How do we define a particular polity? How do we define a particular national group? And when we're talking about national identity in Hong Kong specifically, it's important to note that there are a mixture of ways that different Hong Kongers um, feel about their national identity. Some identify as Chinese, some identify as Hong Konger, some identify as a combination of the two. And so we need to understand what national identity is and where it comes from, because the national identity of the population of Hong Kong is obviously very important when establishing Hong Kong's political status, either as part of Britain as previously, as fully part of China with all of the laws uh, of mainland China as Beijing would apparently like it to be, or as an autonomous city within China, or maybe even as an independent state. Yeah, so I think when we're, when we're discussing the idea of, of nationhood, nationality and nations, the most important thing to remember is that the nation as, as a community is something that is constructed. Uh, I think a lot of people do like to think of the nation as something that's, that's always existed, whether that's you know, the British nation, the Indian nation, the American nation, um, the Chinese nation. But all nations are inherently constructed. There, there is a point that you go back far enough in the past where a certain nation doesn't exist uh, and it comes into being. If we try to define what a nation is, it's, it's tricky and it's a bit ambiguous and fuzzy. Uh, but a good definition of, of nation that's put forward by a political theorist, Benedict Anderson, is that it's an imagined community. It's a community because everyone thinks that they belong to it um, and everyone feels some sense of common identity and belonging, um, whether that's through um, blood, common descent, common history, common language. But it's imagined because the members of that community are never going to meet every other member of that community physically, uh, as contrasted with a more tangible community like a family or a school or a church uh, or a mosque where people physically meet and interact with each other, and that's why it's a community. So I guess in the sense of saying there's a British nation, it's a community because everyone thinks they belong to the same group. It's imagined because not every British person is going to meet every other British person. They're tied together by these intangible things like the English language, um, standing in queues, uh, a loyalty to to a certain set of political values. And I think it's, in some sense, it's easier to see that in the case of Hong Kong, because if we wind back the clock to the Opium War and pre-1842, Hong Kong Island is just a collection of fishing villages. It's perhaps part of a Cantonese nation, perhaps part of a Chinese nation, but it's fundamentally no different to the area around it. And the idea that Hong Kongers might be in some way different, whether that's linguistically, whether that's culturally, whether that's due to their political system, whatever it is, only comes about, traceably only comes about, following its um, acquisition as a British colony. 
Yeah, I think one important thing to pick out here is that we've used the word constructed or constructivism a lot. Uh, and there are two aspects of that which, which we need to pick apart in a bit more detail. The first is that because when we say constructivism in the social sciences or in history or politics, we don't necessarily mean that there's been an intentional plan behind the creation of something. Uh, I guess it's more that something has come about over time as the result of human activity rather than being something naturally pre-existent. And I think that's something a lot of people struggle to uh, conceive of when they start learning social sciences, is that something as um, important and long-standing and seemingly begotten as one's national identity is something that hasn't always been there and was built, but also that it's not built by particular people with intention. Nobody sits down with a blueprint of a nation and says, I want these people to feel French, and they're going to feel French in this particular way. I want these people to feel German, and they're going to feel German in this particular way. It just organically sort of happens. Yeah, I, I do think in, in some instances, um, Singapore comes to mind, there are very concerted, intentional programs of nation building. Uh, but I think you're right, yeah, for the most part, uh, nation building is something which is quite organic um, and decentralised and multiple people uh, have a stake in it at once. It's not something really directed by a government. Uh, the, the other bit of constructivism I think we should touch upon is that just because something is constructed, it doesn't mean that it's fake or, or meaningless. So something like the concept of monetary value um, is, is socially constructed. Uh, the banknotes that you carry around, the coins you carry around, they don't really have any inherent value if there is such a thing that you can't eat them. Um, you can't drink them, they don't help you to survive. But everyone just collectively agrees you can exchange them, exchange them for things of equivalent value. And because everyone agrees that, the world works uh, as if they are absolutely real and pre-existent. So just because something is constructed, it doesn't mean that it's fake or meaningless or somehow worthless. Absolutely. But there is a tension there in that if any one individual decides to declare let's let's keep that analogy running if any one individual decides to declare a new currency if i declare i'm minting my new currency and i cut out some rectangular pieces of paper and i draw my own face on them and i come up with a name that's now not a um a new currency that's not a new socially constructed institution it's just me being a bit crazy if I get enough friends together and we do this and we start trading this and we start using this currency... So Bitcoin, basically. Bitcoin. Um, I mean, arguably, it's an insurrection. If I start... I mean, certainly, if you started doing that in China, Xi Jinping would not look upon it kindly. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, these things seem to come about organically, but there needs to be... There is a sort of certain threshold, and I don't mean that in the sense of a specific, countable, visible line. But there is a certain grey area threshold where enough people start doing something, enough people start believing something or acting in a particular way, that it becomes a generally accepted cultural norm. Right, and that, that, that would then be the difference between delusion and socially constructed truth. And I think that's an important distinction to make because it's, a, it's an argument against constructivist ideas of history and politics that you often hear is, okay, if, if national identity is, is constructed... I'm not British anymore. I'm Tongan. Um, I don't actually have any reason to believe that 
except perhaps just the way that I feel. So I guess the next question that we need to address is if all of these things are constructed, if all of these things just sort of grow organically out of the population and the way that they feel, how do we define who is one nationality and who is another? Yeah, so again, going back to that previous thing, I think nationality is something very amorphous, very difficult to define. It's a blend of language. So in Hong Kong, I guess the unique linguistic characteristics would be a blend of Cantonese and English uh, of history. So of course, as we discussed, Hong Kong's quite unique history uh, as a British crown colony before reverting back to Chinese control um, of common experiences, of common descent. Uh, and that's, I guess, why people would define Hong Kong as a nation. Th- there is a deeper question then, which is in terms of defining a national nationality, uh, who gets to define it? So is it something that's internally defined? So is it a group of people just getting together and saying, we have this new national identity that has developed over time? Uh, or does is there is there a wider circle of which they are part? Uh, in this instance, the, the Chinese nation, which gets to decide what national identity is and whether those that attempt to, to break away from it or define their own identity are insurrectionists or, or rebels. And that's partly what makes Hong Kong so interesting is that that, as we said before, that process definitively starts in the mid-19th century, which is relatively recent. It's relatively young as a, as a national identity, if I might be forgiven for saying national identity. I hope Xi Jinping's not listening. Um, but the others uh, have been around for a lot longer and it's a lot harder to trace their origins. So it's a lot harder to answer that question because if we had more um, direct visible historical evidence on when these nationalities came about, more data on when people began to feel French or English or whatever, um, Chinese, then we might have better answers on, on when these things become concrete. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I guess o- older than Hong Kong's national identity, certainly, um, China's national identity has been around arguably for, for centuries or millennia. Um, but parts of what are now Western China, which have only been relatively recently incorporated into China in, in the grand historical scheme of things, are still considered by the Chinese government to be part of the Chinese nation. Uh, so even if they don't apply to Hong Kong, there is still an awareness, I guess, with the Chinese government that something recently acquired can still be made into part of a broader nation, uh, or indeed detached from a previous nation. And China is a good example for thinking about a the difference between a the way in which nationality and what nationality is defined around can change over time, but b the subtle difference but nonetheless very important difference between a national identity and an ethnic identity that for the majority of the history of China being China as a political entity has not existed for large periods Um, I know that Chinese history textbooks tend to focus on periods of unity where China does exist as one thing and not the periods of division as opposed to warring states absolutely Um, but it's focused around an ethnicity. It's focused around Han ethnicity. Um, and a lot of nations, that's traditionally been true. But especially now, especially in the modern day, that's increasingly not true. Um, and I, I would happily hold up British national identity as an example of that, that being nationally British is in no way connected in a lot of people's uh, conception of it. Unfortunately, there are others that disagree with this. But is not the same as being 
ethnically English, Scottish, whatever, white. Um, uh, yeah, I, I do. I do think that's definitely true in the case of Britain. But even in the case of China, if if you buy the argument that a Chinese nation is something that has existed for quite some time, um, I think you can still separate that from Chinese or Han ethnicity because in terms of the rule of China, many of the major dynasties, so the, the Yuan dynasty, for example, was Mongol. Uh, the most recent dynasty before the Ch- the fall of uh, China's imperial system, the Qing dynasty, was also um, not Han Chinese, was, was Manchu. So I do think China is another good example of a national identity which doesn't necessarily correlate exactly with an ethnic one. So I guess the point to take away from this is there is a bit of a feedback loop here between the national identity of a group of people and the political system of which they're a part. So um, nationality nowadays is often defined simply by citizenship, simply by what country's passport do you hold? Um, whereas ethnicity is something that you're sort of given at birth and you can't change. But, but also that those governments tend to arise around an ethnic group. Certainly if we look at the, the older nations in the world, the older states in the world, they tend to be um, countries that arose because that government was formed out of that ethnic group. For example, King of England was known as the King of the English long before it was King of England because the definition was around the ethnicity of the grouping rather than the particular territory. And to bring this back to Hong Kong, I guess Hong Kong shows that because, again, in the Opium War, 1842, there is no difference between Hong Kong and the other islands around the Pearl Delta, between Hong Kong and the rest of Canton. It's just one of the islands in that region. There's no political interest. There's nothing politically interesting about it. And in becoming a British colony, it's it has a political system. It has political rulers. It has a whole different ruling class of an entirely separate culture imposed upon it. And any national identity that has since grown up in Hong Kong can be traced causally back to that. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think even if we say that Hong Kong is not a, an ethnic community, but a, a national community, that's still important because generally we base... The, the validity of claims to political self-determination on whether there is a distinct nation. So, for example, you mentioned Scotland earlier. Scotland, I would say, at the moment, isn't really an ethnic nation because to be Scottish, you don't necessarily have to have 50 generations of ancestors born in Scotland. Again, it's a commitment to a certain set of values or a certain set of cultural practices. But because Scotland is viewed as a nation, it's viewed as having the right to, certain, to make certain political claims about autonomy and devolution and, and independence. Um, whereas Birmingham, for example, Birmingham is a perfectly defined city or area, but Birmingham isn't really considered a national identity yet. So if someone or a collective of people from Birmingham demanded independence, it would be treated with ridicule. So the concept of one where one national identity ends and another begins or how they overlap um, is, is very relevant to who gets to distribute political power and decision-making power, and in what way. But I suppose another lesson that we should draw out of this, and another conclusion that we have to accept if we accept a constructivist view of nationality, is that the nations and the national identities that we have at this point in history are not fixed forever. 
the fact that they weren't fixed in the fe- in the past sort of proves the fact that they won't be fixed in the future. And if Birmingham, <laughs> to use your example, um, rises up and decides that the Brummy nation uh, needs to Probably be separate. Probably more likely to be Liverpool, isn't it? Yeah, or the Geordies, to be yeah, honest. The well, Cornwall. The, Corn- the Cornish National Party is a thing. That's been going on for um, a long time. Yeah. If a significant proportion of the population begins to believe that, then we have to accept that. We have to be open to the fact that new nationalities, not necessarily will, but may arise in various places and that they have to be taken seriously. Yeah, and I guess in terms of bringing this back to Hong Kong, there's a question about uh, in Hong Kong is a new national identity emerging? How do how do Hong Kongers see, it, see themselves? Um, you, you were talking before about the article in The Economist about uh, a survey of different people living in Hong Kong and how they identify. And I think it was under under the 30s, don't identify as Chinese anymore. Or broadly don't identify as Chinese anymore. The, the main story to pull out of that article was that um, Hong Kongers' identities change massively with age. So the majority of older Hong Kongers uh, identify actually as mixed as a combination of both Chinese and Hong Konger. Um, and as you go down the cohorts towards younger and younger and younger residents of Hong Kong, um, the proportion that identify as a mix is slowly falling. The proportion that identify as Chinese has massively dropped off and the proportion that identify as Hong Kong has massively increased to the extent that almost nobody in Hong Kong under the age of 30 identifies as Chinese. And um, there's, a, there's only been one point since, since 97 uh, where in any age bracket a majority of people have identified themselves as Chinese, which was very briefly in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, amongst people that are 60 plus. So clearly most people in Hong Kong don't view their national identity as exclusively Chinese or they view it as a blend of Chinese or Hong Konger or for those that are really young, um, under 30, exclusively Hong Konger. Uh, I, I think we should balance it out at this point and, and point out that even though most Hong Kongers uh, at this point view themselves as, as having a mixed identity, um, surveys still do generally show that most Hong Kongers do not want independence. Um, they view themselves, yes, as part of the wider Chinese political system, but as a distinct nationality which deserves some degree of uh, autonomy or special consideration. So you're talking about the difference between autonomy and independence here as two different options that are available for Hong Kong, and I'm not sure everyone understands the difference. So I, I guess the most common way we would use them is within a political system. Uh, autonomy would be that you are still part of that broader political system, but you have a degree of independent decision-making um, in certain areas, but the ultimate decision-making authority still rests with the central government somewhere. So um, what's cur- what was currently, or until recently, the case in Hong Kong is a good example of that. Uh, overall uh, political control still rests in Beijing, the ability to control foreign policy and, uh, and defence policy, uh, and to, to, to appoint certain aspects of the political executive rested with Beijing, but... Hong Kong had a lot of decision-making ability in things like, for example, education, healthcare, transport, construction, and so on. Um, independence would be if the state has, or, or if a political body or a political collective has, has full control over all areas of policy, uh, and there are no restrictions um, on what areas of policy it's allowed to, to legislate for. So let's bring us back to the issue at hand and what's making the news at the moment. Um, 
the British government's decision to allow uh, BNO status holders in Hong Kong, which is around half a million Hong Kongers, um, the right to become British citizens if they move to the UK um, and live and work in the UK for five years, they then have a path to citizenship and they can become British citizens. And I think that the UK government has said they're expecting about 300,000 Hong Kongers eventually to take up this offer and move to the UK. And China has said that it's not going to accept those visas, it's not going to allow people to leave Hong Kong on those visas, but that's probably not going to be much of an issue um, because a lot of Hong Kongers, including those who hold BNO status, hold other forms of identification as well, hold Hong Kong passports and therefore don't have to show their BNO passport as they leave Hong Kong. Yeah, and um, I think the issue is that or, or, or the main reason this is a current news story, uh, because the security law was passed some time ago, is China's assertion that Britain offering BNO passport holders a fast track to citizenship in the UK is a form of colonial meddling, or that the UK is somehow uh, getting overly or illegally involved in Chinese internal affairs. Um, in terms of how valid the argument is, I guess there's, there's a legal aspect to it. Um, in terms of should the UK have any say in, in Chinese politics. Uh, the legal question is, is outside, outside the scope of the podcast, I think, and outside my, my sphere of knowledge. Uh, but the two main schools of thought are, in terms of the Sino-British Joint Declaration, uh, either you see it as a binding treaty where China commits to, um, to maintain Hong Kong's unique status for the next 50 years, and Britain legally has a say in that, uh, or China's interpretation is that it's just a general statement of intent, but it's now irrelevant and it has no bearing on the current political situation. Um, I think much more interesting is the, the moral, the, the political argument about whether the UK should have any say on this, on this instance. Uh, and my personal view on this is that the UK is not really meddling in China's internal affairs because what it's offering is it's offering Hong Kong citizens a path to British citizenship if they want it. It's not telling Hong Kongers that they have to become British citizens. Uh, it's not forcing people to leave Hong Kong. Uh, it's not advocating for any changes really in Hong Kong's political status, uh, whether that's for more autonomy or for total independence. Um, so I don't really see how this could be viewed as colonial meddling if it's not an attempt to change the political status of Hong Kong and it's only the extension of choice uh, to Hong Kongers. I don't want to set a precedent of China bashing on this podcast, and I certainly don't want to set a precedent of agreeing with whatever the UK government does just because we both happen to be rich assistants. But um, I agree that in this particular case, I don't think China has a leg to stand on. And one of the things that I find interesting about China's response to this is reading um, Chinese origin, but unfortunately, I, Mandarin is not as good as I. I would like, um, English language newspapers, the arguments that the Chinese government is putting forward as to why this is um, not uh, an acceptable move from the British government are really surprisingly weak. Um, the one that sticks out in my mind is the argument that Britain is forcing Hong Kongers to become second-class citizens of Britain, which, as you've said, the forcing part is not true. Uh, Hong Kongers have the right to remain in Hong Kong if they want to. It's merely opening up the opportunity for them to come to Britain if they wish, and the opportunity for them to come to Britain if they wish. Um, and secondly, the 
second-class citizen thing doesn't make sense because the BNO status is arguably second-class citizenship. It entitles those Hong Kongers that own it to some of the benefits of bringing a British citizen, but not all of them. But that has been in existence for a very long time now. And the change that the UK government is making now is offering those people the chance to, if they come and live and work in the UK for five years, become full British citizens. So they can't now argue that this move is making second-class citizens because it's pushing them closer, actually, to being full British Yeah, citizens. and I, I think it's also hard to see that China would be happy with Britain offering those Hong Kongers full British citizenship if, if Britain changed its policy to say that overnight there is no five-year process, you just come here and instantly you're a British citizen. Um, that's not something that, that Beijing would be, would be happy with. Um, so again, like you said, it doesn't seem to be a particularly strong argument. Um, the other argument that I've seen floating around on social media and Chinese media is that, that the UK is somehow trying to, to pry Hong Kongers away um, or that these are people with, with a Chinese identity who Britain is trying to uh, encourage, in, in whom Britain is trying to encourage subversion uh, and treasonous intent. Um, as we talked about before with the Economist survey, that doesn't seem to be the case. Most Chinese, uh, most people living in Hong Kong don't seem to identify as Chinese. The other piece of evidence that might seem to bolster that is in the 2019 uh, district council elections in, in Hong Kong. There was a massive landslide for the pro-democracy parties, i.e. those who wanted to maintain the status quo and maintain Hong Kong's uh, unique status within China. Uh, and the pro-Beijing parties suffered a, a massive defeat, losing control of all but, I think, one of the the councils, the district councils in Hong Kong. So, again, I don't think that Britain is here developing a new Hong Konger identity. This is something which is already in existence. Definitely something that's socially constructed as are all national identities. Uh, but it's, some, it's not something that Britain has created through this recent policy. It's something which exists, which are they are now recognising and trying to offer a political solution to. And coming back to that um, article that you were talking about in the data on Hong Kongers and their national identities, um, specifically, actually, you can look at the trends over time and when that there is a particular sort of moment at which Hong Konger identity begins to increase rapidly, and it's post-1997, it's in the 2000s. Um, so the argument that this is British intervention in Hong Kong that is creating this new Hong Kong identity, I think can be disproved using that data that actually it's well after uh, Britain ran the colony that the Hong Kong identity really begins to take off, certainly among, among young, young Hong Kongers. And it seems, obviously you can never tell these things straight from graph, but it seems that it's China's um, actions in the territory in the 2000s and the 2010s that is pushing certainly the younger population of Hong Kong away from a Chinese identity and towards a Hong Kong identity, not any British government intervention. The other part of that being that if it were British intervention, you would, you would think that maybe the Hong Kong youth would be pulled towards a British identity, which they're not, it's Hong Kong. The number of people in Hong Kong that identify as British is and most of them are actually British citizens who've simply moved to Hong Kong. So I, I guess wrapping this all up and taking it all together, the, the moral of the story, as it were, is that when we think about national identities, yes, they are something that are socially constructed, they're, they're created and they develop and they evolve over time, 
but that is the same for all forms of, of identity. And when we think about self-determination and the ideas of who should have a, a say in their political future, the only sensible stance, I think we both agree, is that if people feel that like they have developed a unique national identity, they then get the ultimate say on their political future. Um, there, there is this idea of the, the white man's burden, which was very common in colonialism, where uh, people from European countries argued people in other parts of the world don't really know what they want. Uh, they can't have a say in the future. They're uncivilized. They're not educated enough. We have to make the decision for them. And, and I think in this specific instance, there's almost a reverse Chinese man's burden where the Chinese government is arguing Hong Kongers don't know, you know what's good for them. They can't define their own identity. They can't define their own future. But I think clearly if the, the political and general survey data shows that there is a unique Hong Kong identity uh, in the national sense that that should be respected and that should form the basis for political self-determination, whether that is full independence, which at the moment looks pretty unpopular, or autonomy, which does look like it's the most common uh, belief amongst people that reside in Hong Kong. I think that's probably a good note to end on, although we should make it clear that this issue, like any other diplomatic dispute, is complicated and we can only scratch the surface in 40 minutes. If you do have any questions, comments or suggestions regarding this week's podcast, please do get in touch with us via our website, on Twitter with our handle at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can email contact.theviolet at gmail.com. We also love to know if you have any suggestions for future podcast topics. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you and we hope that you'll tune in again next week.